From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. There's not just a blessing you say before food, and there's not even just one blessing that you say before eating a piece of fruit or a vegetable. There's a blessing that you say for eating fruit from a vine. There's a blessing that you say before eating fruit from a tree, and there's a blessing you say before eating fruit or vegetables from the earth. On today's show, Josephine McRobbie talks with Meredith Cohen of One Soil Farm about what it means to her to have a Jewish farming practice. We check back in with Cezanne Mexican Cuisine about how their Yucatan taco stand has grown since our last visit. And poet Yaley Kamara reflects on the ways in which we sometimes turn to food when our grief is more than we can bear. That's all just ahead after the news. Associate producer Alex Chambers is departing from the Earth Eats team, and we'll miss him terribly. However, he's here for one final news report. Hello, Alex. Hi, Kate. Yes, I will miss being here. For my last report, we've got two stories. One is an update on the USDA's plans to move two agencies to the Kansas City area. And the other is about ice raids at processing plants in Mississippi. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Inspector General has added criticism to a plan to move hundreds of researchers from Washington, D.C. to the Kansas City area. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer explains. Two Democratic members of Congress from the D.C. area, Steny Hoyer and Eleanor Holmes Norton, requested an inspector general's investigation to determine whether the move was legal. The report found that while the relocations themselves pass muster, the money to pay for them does not. That's because USDA failed to provide certain information by a congressional deadline. USDA is calling the rules requiring that information unconstitutional, but the inspector general's report said USDA had read those same rules differently in other matters. Norton and Hoyer called on USDA to halt the moves. Many Economic Research Service and National Institute of Food and Agriculture employees chose to leave their jobs rather than relocate. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. A massive immigration crackdown in Mississippi last week underscores the human costs of a food system that relies on workers carrying out perilous work with few protections. On August 7th, hundreds of immigration officials raided seven processing plants in Mississippi, arresting at least 680 workers. It was one of the largest single crackdowns of its kind in U.S. history. The facilities face possible charges of willfully and unlawfully employing undocumented workers. So far, the consequences of this raid have landed squarely on the workers and surrounding community. About 300 were arrested and released on the same day, and the remainder held at an ICE facility in Louisiana. Local communities describe ripple effects, with a severe drop in business that depends on the plants, like grocery stores and bakeries. It also affects businesses that employed detained plant workers in secondary jobs. The plants are owned by several heavy-hitting companies, including Pico Foods, Coke Foods, Pearl River Foods, and A&B, Incorporated. The impact on the companies operating the plants has been minimal. No charges have been filed against them, though an investigation is ongoing. And that's the news. Thanks to Amy Mayer of Harvest Public Media and our own Chad Bouchard for those stories. And thank you, Alex, for everything. You're welcome, Kate. It's been great. Presidential candidates are out in full force across Iowa, meeting voters and finding out what's important to them. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer reports that's an opportunity to get agricultural issues on the national agenda. 
Iowa's first-in-the-country caucuses are less than six months away, and this time around, there's little competition on the Republican side. But more than 20 Democrats are vying for their party's nomination. University of Iowa political scientist Tim Hagel says it's a heady time to be an Iowa voter. And the joke always is, is you know, if you ask one person in Iowa, New Hampshire, have you decided on a candidate? No, I've only met them, you know, two or three times. Iowa went twice for Barack Obama and then for Donald Trump. Democrats hope they can win Iowa again, so candidates are trying to attract voters who aren't committed to either party by showing they care about Iowa interests, like agriculture. On a hot 4th of July, a crowd mingled in a private yard ahead of California Senator Kamala Harris's stop in Indianola, a small city within commuting distance of Des Moines. Corn and soybean fields stretched around two sides of the property. Warren County boasts a couple of outlying suburbs of Des Moines, but most of it is still farmland. Kevin Peterson isn't registered with either party. He's listening to everyone. He says hot-button social issues probably aren't what he and his neighbors will base their decisions on. The economic issues, when they're going to make a significant impact to to a a rural area or semi-rural area like Warren County, is probably going to sway things a lot more in 2020. Peterson's not a farmer, but he wants to know what candidates plan to do about trade deals, which some argue have disproportionately hurt farmers. In Corn Belt states in particular, the slashing of soybean exports to China has stymied farm profits. Voter David Kitsis has seen the impact. Farmers need help right now, big time. And uh, current administration's not doing it with the tariffs with China, and so we've got to get somebody else in there. Harris came prepared to address Trump's ag policy, even referencing soybeans rotting in bins because farmers didn't have a market for them. We've seen a president of the United States who came into office saying that he was going to protect farmers. Yet, he initiates trade policy by tweet. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar toured an Iowa ethanol plant in April and declared support for the renewable fuel standard, a law popular with farmers because of the demand it creates for their corn. In 2000, Republican candidate John McCain essentially skipped campaigning in Iowa because he opposed ethanol subsidies. Other candidates are taking on the merging of large agribusinesses. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says if she's elected president, she'll undo the completed Bear-Monsanto merger. Remember, you can continue to consider the monopolistic impact of these mergers even after they occur. So this is not one of those where, darn, now it's happened and so there's nothing we can do but wring our hands. In the July debates, agriculture came up only a few times. Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan called for a more sustainable agricultural system. And former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke specifically mentioned cover crops and conservation easements. But the lack of primetime attention underscores the role of early state voters. Again, political scientist Tim Hagel. It does give voters a chance to raise those issues before the candidates and give the candidates an opportunity to consider those issues that they might not consider in another state. Hagel says that can result in pandering, but Iowans have a long memory for those caucus season promises. Obama, for instance, had a tough re-election campaign here. He made an awful lot of promises as a candidate and was not able to follow through. President Trump came out in favor of ethanol ahead of the 2016 Iowa caucus. He didn't win it, but Iowa's Republican senators have made a point to hold him to his commitment. Hagel says that's the sort of legacy the Iowa caucuses can foster. But it's not clear whether any issue will rise to that level for Democrats in 2020. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. To hear more, visit harvestpublicmedia.org.
Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Learning to farm takes hard work, determination, and a lot of elbow grease. For Meredith Cohen, it also took diving deep into her own ideas about faith and fellowship. Josephine McRobbie spoke with Meredith at One Soil Farm. I'm asked a fair amount, like, what is a Jewish farm? What is a Jewish farmer? What does it mean to be a Jewish farmer? There's the way that being Jewish could influence how I farm, and there's the way that farming and being connected to land informs my Judaism and what it means to me to be Jewish. And I think that both of those things are very intertwined. Ten years ago, North Carolina native Meredith Cohen was working as a teacher. She was experiencing burnout and wondering how to create a more sustainable life. She was starting to garden and dabble in homesteading, and she was also longing for Jewish community and was having a hard time figuring out how to find it. So when I discovered that Adama existed, like when I first saw the words Jewish farm, like in the same place, I was like, oh, it just sort of planted the seed in my head of like, that, that's, what I, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. Adama is a Jewish farming program in Falls Village, Connecticut. Residents spend two to three months living communally on the 10-acre farm, immersed in operations like growing vegetables, tending to goats, and helping with lacto-fermentation. Meredith stayed for three years. She was immersed in Jewish culture in a way she never had been. It was like throwing myself in the deep end. Like It was like getting to be in a Jewish place um, that runs on a Jewish calendar, where you just really get to be surrounded by by Jewish community and culture, and also by, I think, more diverse Jewish community and culture than we often get to in, like, the rest of our society right now. Um, At Adama, it's a pluralistic space, so, you know, people who had the full range of experiences from feeling really alienated from Judaism and wanting to get a chance to, to explore that and be in that community, and also, you know, like, living in the same house with people who had grown up Orthodox, and maybe it was their first time being around people who weren't Orthodox. And so it's just, it's it's a really vibrant community. We have some winter squash, delicata, and butternut. Are- in 2016, Meredith moved back to North Carolina, where she spent two years rerouting herself in her own local communities and working on local farms to learn how to grow in the southeastern climate. We have cucumbers, eggplants, okra. We're walking through One Soil's half acre in Cary with her sister Caitlin and nephew Ellis. They're on land that's leased out of the incubator farming program Good Hope. She currently sells southern staples like squash, watermelon, and greens at her own farm stand outside the Jewish Community Center in Durham. Next, she hopes to create a CSA program that operates through both local synagogues. 
Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam. Meredith, Caitlin, and Ellis are saying a blessing over a tiny cucumber Ellis has picked off the plant. Should I bite it? <laughs> One of my favorite things about Judaism is that we have very specific blessings. Like, there's not just a blessing you say before food, and there's not even just one blessing that you say before eating a piece of fruit or a vegetable. There's a blessing that you say for eating fruit from a vine. There's a blessing that you say before eating fruit from a tree. And there's a blessing you say before eating fruit or vegetables from the earth. And and I think getting to say those blessings after physically picking a fruit from a tree or a vegetable from the ground and then getting to say the blessing and have that experience. Um, it's just really special. For Meredith, there's a connection between the practice of farming and being in active dialogue with her own Jewish identity and her history. It really is a reconnection. The truth is that Jewish people, like all people, have agricultural roots. Um, and, you know, we're a diasporic people, as in, you know, for thousands of years, we've been forced to move around a lot. Um, But if you look at our traditions, um, and even our religious traditions, they do come from agricultural roots. And many of our holidays that over time, we've come to, you know, sort of connect with a biblical or historical story are also really connected to the land and to harvest and to the seasons, there's just really exciting and meaningful um, things happening where people are reconnecting Jewish holidays and traditions to nature and the seasons and what does it mean to be connected to land. This relationship to land can be complex, and that's something she hopes by having a physical space to gather that she can address more fully. I'm Jewish, and there's a history of diaspora there, and I think it can be really healing for our community to explore our relationship with home and what does it mean to to claim a place as home and to build a relationship there um, that feels lasting and safe. And I'm also white, and, you know, I live here in North Carolina, and, you know, our country is was built on colonialism and enslaving people and even just me figuring out, you know, what does it mean to own land or to farm land is really complicated. And I think that when people have those conversations actually on land, it changes the way we can have those conversations. A grounded and connected approach is reflected in the name of her farm, One Soil, a term coined by Carl Hammer of the Vermont Compost Company, signifies both the physical transformation of waste into fertilizer, as well as the ephemeral nature of our own lives. It's cited often at Adama, and it's one of Meredith's most treasured memories of her time there. You're walking across the farm and you see people schlepping compost up the hill and someone yells wine and everybody else yells back soil. <laughs> it's actually like a cheer that happens. Um, and I kind of think of it as shorthand or just like just a reminder that we're all connected. Like we're all connected to each other. We're all connected to the land. Thanks to producer Josephine McRobbie for that story. If you've been listening for a while, you might remember Cezanne. It's a family-run taco stand that sells at the farmer's market here in Bloomington. We played our profile of them several weeks ago. The owners are Maria Yukon and Jesus Barajas. 
They run the business with some help from their son and now a few employees. They're scaling up, and we're always curious about what it takes to make a food business work. So we wanted to check back in with them. Well, we have a little bit of uh, like a kitchen, a prep kitchen area. We have some work tables. We have like a half-size convection oven, some food warmers, electric food warmers. We have a, a sandwich press. Jesus and I are standing in their new shop. The room is long and narrow with plenty of nice table seating and a lime green couch in the front window. We like to call this space more of a storefront, not quite. A, I mean, it is a restaurant, but we refer to it as a storefront because we don't have a kitchen here. We are still using the commissary kitchen. That's One World Kitchen Share, a commercial kitchen that several food businesses in town use for food prep and cold storage. That caught a lot of the expenses for us. That's why it was easy for us to, to make the decision into moving and getting this space, because we didn't have all those expenses to, to need to, like, like for build-out or hood installation or, or grease interceptor installation and all that. It also means they're not making huge changes to their menu. But there will be more options. Their menu at the farmer's market is pretty focused on breakfast. Here at the storefront, the toppings and the sauces are, are the same. We have tacos, we have tortas, which is a Mexican-style sandwich. It's like a large... It, it looks... It, it's not quite a, a baguette, but it, it has that kind of shape. But it's not as long. And then uh, we also do quesadillas. Uh, we have bowls with uh, rice and beans base and then the meat and, and all the toppings. Um, we have fresh guacamole and cheese and chips, I'm sorry. And we are trying to incorporate another two or three like shareables um, into the menu for people just like the guacamole. Maybe we'll do eventually some like chips and salsa or like, uh, like queso or cheese sauce with chips. And here we have a They'll have grilled chicken al pastor, roasted cauliflower with tempeh and corn, and that pork. The pork that we talked about before and I described, like it's traditional from the Yucatan, and it's like slow braised overnight and, and wrapped in banana leaves. Uh, that is very popular now, and a lot of people, they, they, they like it and they go for it. And then another dish that we have that, that is, it, it is starting to get like very popular is... Um, Portobellos, they're like roasted portobellos with sauteed onions, garlic, and guajillo peppers. And of course, they'll also have the toppings that they've had at market from the beginning. Chopped onions, cilantro, and the pickled red onions that we, that we made ourselves that, that are very popular. Sliced radishes, cucumbers, limes. Here at the storefront, we have a sliced pineapple as well because we do al pastor. Um, chicken, it's grilled chicken al pastor. Both of the sauces... Uh, tomatillo, the green sauce, and then the habanero one that are, a lot of people like. People do like that habanero sauce, including your host. We'll talk about the secrets of that sauce in a bit. But first, I wanted to know if the new location was going to offer a new customer base as well. You're right here on Walnut, and you're right across from the Bluebird and some of these other spots that are really popular with students and kind of a nightlife scene. And I was wondering if if you'd end up like staying open longer for people who just want to come in for some tacos or something when they're out. We are really focused on the quality of our product and I don't know if we will be able to still satisfy that and uh, like at late night. 
yeah, like, like for the bar crowd, I really like people to appreciate the product that we are that we are preparing. And it's not that they are not gonna appreciate it, but maybe not in the same way that if they come for lunch or dinner and they are able to enjoy it in a better like setting or earlier in the day. Jesus is very focused on quality, and they've always sourced their meats and many of their other ingredients from local farmers. I wondered if that would change with scaling up. Pretty much all the, the vegetables and the meats and everything that we've been using since the beginning, uh, that's what we try to keep, to, to, just, just for quality of the product and inconsistency. Uh, I, I'm not a big, a big fan or, or, or going the, just because it's going to be cheap for me. I like to keep it the same way. That way people get the same product every time they come. They're juggling a lot these days, maintaining ties to where they got their start, even as they launch this new location downtown. So we, we are at the farmer's market every Saturday, and, and we're going to continue doing that. That's why we're closed here in the morning. We, we just open for dinner on Saturday uh, night. We really like the farmer's market. Like I said, we didn't know what to expect and how people was going to react since the beginning, but then we kind of like, like, like fall in love with the atmosphere and the community um, and the other vendors as well at the farmer's market, and that's why we, we like to keep that and continue as long as we, we can do it. We like to describe our food, our like um, traditional or authentic Mexican food. At the beginning, at the beginning it was just like uh, sazon tacos or, or taqueria, uh, because that's what we were doing. But then when we started doing like tamales and some other places, and and the breakfast item, it was a little bit more broad. So that's why we changed the name to sazon Mexican cuisine. So it's so you get more of um, of of the cuisine, not just the tacos. I asked Jesus if it was starting to feel like dreams coming true. It's really nice to have this opportunity and to have found this. I mean, it, it, it's difficult sometimes. It's hard to, to, to manage everything. Um, it's still a family business. It's, we still focus on, on, on like everything local and, and, and the quality and the product that we're gonna present to people. Uh, but it's fun too. I mean, it's fun to come up with different things and, and new ideas. And though it's still a family business, they have hired five employees to help run the market stand in the storefront. You can stop by Cezanne's downtown location for lunch or dinner, Wednesday through Friday, and for dinner on Saturday. Details on our website, eartheats.org. Okay, one more thing, the habanero sauce. I promised I'd get back to the hot sauce. I'm interested to hear more about your habanero hot sauce because I had some at the market on Saturday and they told me it was hot. This was the hot one, this was the mild one. I was like, oh, I want the hot one. And I just put it all over the taco and ate it and was like, wow, I was dying. And I really like hot, spicy foods, but it was so intense and I loved it. It was great. I really, really love it. Uh, So what all is in that? It's a recipe that we kind of put together at the beginning from like other just basic recipes that that, did, that we usually people uh, consume in, in Yucatan, just habanero peppers with maybe like lime juice and salt. So, but we added more stuff to it, other other spices, other juices, sour orange that we, that we are able to get sometimes. And what I like about it is that it, it is really hot, but it has a lot of flavor to it, and that's what I like. Um, I, I really, I'm not a big fan of just heat itself because then I mean it kind of ruins everything uh, but, it, but if it has a, a really good flavor like this one does 
then yeah i mean you can you can enjoy it even if your mouth is burning it's just like roasted it's like um the habanero peppers onions and garlic that it has they're kind of like like charred they're not completely cooked it's not like 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 it's boiled or anything it's just like that and then make it blend it yeah so there you have it not an exact recipe per se they can't give away all their secrets but you've got something to start with if your habaneros are ripening in your garden and you want to give it a try. But first, you need to taste Cezanne's. You'll find them at the Bloomington Farmer's Market this Saturday, and now you can stop by the new storefront near 6th and Walnut downtown. Some people say food is not political. I'd say that food is part of culture and that it carries meaning into all of the spaces where we find ourselves eating together, sharing food. Poet Yeli Kamara reflects on gathering and sharing food in the face of violence and mourning. Repast in the Diversity Center. We line up with our paper plates in hand. Two pieces of white bread, packs of mayo, mustard and ketchup. There are tongs to grab the fixings. Water runs down the spine of the washed lettuce. It arches like a back snapping out of nightmare. Sliced tomatoes bleed into the foil pan holding them. The spicy nacho Doritos rub against the pink ripple of meat peeking from between the bread slices. After every two or three deaths, we are invited to grieve eat ham sandwiches. I sit at a round table and struggle to open my bag of chips between each microphone voice that laments another loss. How we've come together once more to eat all that we cannot bury. A man holds the mic like an ice cream cone. I mean, I guess I'd be willing to die if I had to. He tugs at the bottom of his untucked purple polo shirt. I thought the food would taste better. When I am sad, the noises in my head are louder. In my mouth, the chips sound like someone walking on loose gravel. My people need to crunch up. It's crunch or never. I'd rather crunch on my feet than live on my knees. It seems I might miss the revolution eating state school-sponsored snacks. A white woman from the campus mental health clinic offers counseling services. She stutters, then fades into the wall as if to make space for Marvin as he croons his famed question into the speaker's. I'll tell you what's going on. The lemonade is too sweet for such an occasion. I'd rather drink water. Cheesy stardust bruises the tips of my fingers. It smears onto any surface I touch. I am marked. Lord, people are dying, and the only evidence of my mourning are these party hands. What a bright color against these deep black blues. I have to be honest. I only came because I was hungry. Yeli Kamara is a Sierra Leonean-American writer and native of Oakland, California. Find more about Yeli and her work at eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. 
Special thanks this week to Meredith Cohen, Yaley Kamara, Jesus Barajas, and everyone at Cezanne. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.